Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. Tell me who is Clash and what is it to you? Nice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hello, Kevin. How are you? I am really good. Really excited for uh, this this Clash. Yeah, indeed. Me too. Uh, well, in that case, uh, tell us what this Clash is and what today's album is. Um, so this, uh, this week's Clash, we've gone punk. Uh, we've gone to the early days of punk and two of the you would say uh base albums of the entire movement really so uh, this mm-hmm. week we will uh, you will be taking us through the clash's eponymous debut um, you correctly used the word eponymous well done <laughs> like a hippopotamus <laughs> <laughs> sorry go on and next week i will be taking us through the sex pistols only uh, full album never mind the bollocks yeah, so it is our musical road trip again. So obviously it's London. There's quite a lot that connects the Pistols and, and the Clash. Well, they basically knocked around together a lot as they were growing. The Clash supported the Sex Pistols. The Sex Pistols inspired members of the Clash to form a band, uh, or form a punk band at least. And the managers of the bands were mates. <laughs> Yeah, there's quite a few links bet- between the two, and not. Well, we'll get into all that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we we, we will. There's a um, lot of stuff. I was going to say, forewarning, guys. Uh, I think these could be a couple of long old pods, so we'll do our best to be succinct and concise. But um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff to get through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, before we start going through it, though, it is can't get you out of my head. Time. I have no shite this week, Kev. Do you? Unfortunately, I do. <laughs> Go on then. No idea why. Why it popped into my head the other day. It's the absolutely despicable "Mysterious Girl" by Peter Andre. Oh my god! <laughs> why on earth is that? I have no idea. I presume so. I, I presume Pondre was on. Um, some TV advert or some shite like that, and it just popped in there. It, I felt very much like Dan Aykroyd. Uh, I was going to say, <laughs> what just popped in there, Ray? <laughs> it was the most innocent song. No, no, no it wasn't. <laughs> wow. I'm speaking. Yeah, you didn't see that coming. No, and it's not even one of your amusing ditties about you and Sam, like singing random things uh, when you're doing simple household tasks. It just popped in there. A bit like a shit that you can't flush. Quite. Uh, All right, well, let's move swiftly on then. What do you want to give a shout to and add to our playlist. I would really like to give a shout out to the song Hamburg in the Morning by Fake Empire. Ooh, okay. It's really good. So it's got really strong uh, the national vibes mm. also a bit of New Order going on. It's dark moody electro. It's really really good. They've not released a huge amount of stuff so 
I managed to track it down on one of the electronic streaming services. So I'm sure you can uh, find it, but it is really good. So what's it called again, sorry? It's called Hamburg in the Morning, and it's by Fake Empire. Excellent. I will definitely check it out. Uh, you said the words Moody Electro, so uh, I am all about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm also going to go with some beats this week. We've moved away from our guitar-heavy selections uh, last time out. Um, so a band that I know we both like, or a group, I should say, uh, who we both are, are, are quite fond of, released a new album last year. Uh, that album is Fragments by Bonobo. Ooh. Um, mm, uh, it's really good. If you like Bonobo, it's everything you want from Bonobo. So the track I'm going to pick is called Otomo. Uh, it features O'Flynn. And yeah, as you'd expect from Bonobo, there's some lovely, mellow, percussive beats uh, and absolutely huge bass. So all good. All good stuff. Okay, uh, shall we move on? I think we should. Right, Top Trump's time. I believe you're to lead. Yeah, I am. Uh, I think I'm going to get um, swept here, to be honest with you, Kev. But we'll Could see. well happen. So, The Clash by The Clash. I'm going to start with my strongest... Well, actually, no, I think maybe I won't get swept because this is really strong. I'm going to go critic scores. Okay. Okay. All music, five out of five. Ditto. Rolling Stone, five out of five. Ditto. Q, five out of five. Ditto. And the Village Voice gave it a solid A. So Chris Gow, in his uh, record guide, also gave it an A. <laughs> Basically, every review I saw of The Clash gave it top marks, so I, I think that's definitely a draw. Yeah, I would say so. Okay, then. Yeah, I'm not confident on anything else, so let's just go top down for the rest of them. Right, sales. Around about 600,000 certified sales worldwide. Okay, I quite easily uh, trump that. Yeah, I thought you would. Two times platinum in the UK uh, with 600,000 sales, platinum in the US, 1 million, and so on and so forth. So you've, we've done certifications as well there. So you've talked about platinums in the US and the UK. Yeah, I've got gold in the US and the UK. So you have, in your haste, won two in one there. So that immediately puts you 2-0 up, and I am fighting against the tide. Go on. Okay, uh, I'll go on to charts. Yeah, right then. So, peaked at number one in the UK. <sighs> number 12. Elsewhere, not as good as you as you would have thought of. So, the top it reached in the US was 106 on the billboard. Still beat me. The highest the Clash climbed in the US was 126. Although, even that comes with an asterisk, because as I'll go on to talk about in a bit... Uh, the Clash's debut album was not released in the US until 1979, so it was not their first release in the US, and it had uh, a significantly modified track listing. So, yeah, the only other thing I've got is uh, the Clash got to number 42 in Sweden. Uh, well, reached number 11 in Norway and number 9 in Holland. Damn it! Those uh, Dutch boys, they uh, really like that punk. <laughs> Quite so. Uh, right, that means you've won because there's only two categories left mm-hmm. and you're 3 nil up. So uh, go on, bring it home. So awards. Yep. None. 
Uh, ditto. <laughs> <laughs> so that's two draws. Get in. Okay, and classic lists, I suppose. Yeah. Enemy, 1985, NME voted it the 13th greatest album of all time. Okay. It was the third greatest of time, greatest of all time in 1993 in the NME. 1987, it was the second best album in the Rolling Stone of okay. all time. However, had dropped to 41st um, in 2003 and maintained that in 2012, dropping to 73 in 2020. Right. So you've won. So I've have. I, I, so in 2003, Mojo put it as number two on its list of the top 50 punk albums. Uh, in uh, 2000, Q put it as number 48 on its list of the 100 greatest British albums. Our old mate Colin Larkin, in his all-time top 1,000 list, put it as number 180 back in 2000. And then on the Rolling Stone top 500 list, so 2003 it was 77, 2012 that had gone down to 81, and in 2020 that had gone down to number 102. So a comfortable win for the Sex Pistols there. But will that be the case in the circle of death? We will see in two weeks' time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Right, should I start taking us through the background to The Clash by The Clash? Yes. Well, the first thing, uh, actually, I'd like to start with is a question, Kev. Uh, A 14-track album clocking in at a little over 35 minutes. What do you think? Bang into it. (laughs) I thought you might be. Although, it could be shorter. (laughs) (laughs) I fucking knew it! I knew it! Wait till later, because I know exactly what song you're talking about. (laughs) Oh, right, okay. So, yeah, The Clash, by The Clash. As Kev said, it was their eponymously titled debut. Released on the 8th of April 1977 on CBS Records, Uh, it was recorded between the 10th and the 27th of February 1977, mainly at CBS London Studios, uh, but also at the National Film and Television School in Beaconsfield in Buckinghamshire. It was produced by Mickey Foote. Okay, I've got a lot in terms of the founding of The Clash and and coming to the album, so I'll, I'll, I'll try and go through it as quickly as I can. Right, before The Clash became The Clash, the various members of the band were active in different bands around different parts of the London music scene. So, John Mellor, who would later become known as Joe Strummer, um, he was in a sort of pub band called The 101ers. He played rhythm guitar in that group. His original stage name was Woody Mellor, but he renamed himself Joe Strummer in a reference to his rudimentary strumming skills on the ukulele when he used to busk on the London Underground. Okay, so Mick Jones, he played guitar in a proto-punk band called London SS. Uh, They played together for most of 1975, but they never actually played a single live show, and they only recorded one demo. (laughs) Yet it still managed to be Joe Wiley's favourite band. <laughs> that is a brilliant callback to rock profiles. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well done. So London SS were managed by Bernard Rhodes, who was a, a, a mate of Malcolm McLaren, and he was also mates with the Sex Pistols themselves. Through that, Mick Jones and the rest of London SS became 
friendly with particularly Glenn Matlock and Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols. Uh, and Matlock and Jones helped Mick Jones find uh, new members for his band. Um, so amongst those who auditioned for London SS but did not make the cut uh, were Paul Simonon. Uh, he actually tried out as a vocalist but was, uh, say, didn't make the cut. Remember that name because he will be coming up again shortly. He shall. And uh, drummer Terry Chimes. Again, he will also be coming up later. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Nicky Heedon drummed with the band for a week and then quit. Remember that name as well. <laughs> <laughs> right, so London SS broke up in 76, early doors. In February of that year, Mick Jones first saw the Sex Pistols perform live. He said uh, of that uh, gig, you knew straight away that was it. And this is what it was going to be like from now on. It was a new scene, new values, so different from what had happened before. A bit dangerous. Joe Strummer said something very similar about the first time he saw the Pistols. In fact, the 101ers had opened a gig uh, for mm-hmm. the Sex Pistols. And he said, I knew something was up, so I went out in the crowd, which was fairly sparse. And I saw a future with a snotty handkerchief right in front of me. It was immediately clear. Pub rock was, hello, you bunch of drunks. I'm going to play these boogies and I hope you like them. The Pistols came out that Tuesday evening and their attitude is, here's our tunes. We couldn't give a flying fuck whether you like them or not. In fact, we're going to play them even if you fucking hate them. Five seconds into their first song, I knew we were yesterday's papers. Great quote. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know whether you... Well, I was going to cover this uh, next week, but obviously the import of the Sex Pistols and, you know, there's the legendary uh, Manchester Free Trade gig where (laughs) basically... (laughs) Everyone everyone ever was at. (laughs) Including Simply Hook now. um, (laughs) Like, went to this gig and then decided to form a band. Well, I was at that gig, Kev, despite it happening five years before I was born. <laughs> I know, considering that, like, it was sparsely populated, like, every every band in the Northwest appears to have t- rocked up at one point. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm sure we'll come on to that more in a couple of weeks' time. Right, so, on the suggestion of Bernard Rhodes, uh, Mick Jones re-established contact with Paul Sudman in, in March, um, suggesting that he basically starts learning the bass so he could join a new band. Pretty soon after that, Mick Jones, Paul Simonon and Keith Levine on guitar were rehearsing. They got Terry Chimes on board to audition and uh, he got the job. They were still looking for a new singer. Bernard Rhodes had seen Joe Strummer playing with the 101ers, so he basically made contact with Strummer. McJones and Keith Levine had also seen him perform, and they thought, yeah, this guy looks like he might have what it takes. So when Mick Rhodes, Keith Levine, and McJones... Nick Rhodes? (laughs) Your favourite musician. Oh, that's staying in. (laughs) Nick Rhodes. I mean, the the Clash were very different (laughs) before Strummer joined. (laughs) Right, so Bernard Rhodes... Keith Levine, Mick Jones, asked Joe Strummer, do you want to join our new band after a 101ers gig? They gave him, well, some say it was 48 hours to make his decisions. Some say it was 24 hours to make his decisions. But basically, it only took him a few hours to go, yep, sound. Uh, Paul Simonon later remarked, once we had Joe on board, it all started to come together. So, the name The Clash was something that Paul Simonon himself came up with. Thankfully so, because they had 
briefly been named before that as both the weak heart drops and the psychotic negatives. I mean, they're both dreadful names. <laughs> they are. I cannot imagine a cover of I Fought the Law by the psychotic negatives being one of the most celebrated punk songs of all time. Indeed. <laughs> right, so Paul Simon and later said, uh, it literally came to my head when I started reading the newspapers and a word that kept recurring was the word clash. So I thought, the clash? What about that? To the others. And they went for it. So... They'd been playing together for less than a month. They made their live debut on the 4th of July, 1976, supporting the Sex Pistols at a gig at the Black Swan in Sheffield. So apparently they targeted that date because they wanted to play their first gig before another spin-off of London SS, a little band known as The Damned, played their first gig, which occurred just two days later. I mean, <laughs> the parochial nature of the um, <laughs> incipient punk movement very very much comes out uh, in these yep. early stories. It, it does. However, The Clash would not play in front of a live audience again for a further five weeks, so it must have been a great show. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, is it also, like, because I'm sure that I've read somewhere that basically... The decision to bring Paul Simonon into the band is because they just liked liked his look. Oh right, okay. <laughs> I've and that, read that. And that's kind yeah. of why they t- said, right, you need to go learn bass because you you, <laughs> you look cool. You look cool. You can't sing. Yeah, you you cannot. Act, you're going to have to play the bass. Well, as we're going to come on to, considering that he'd only picked up the bass in '76, he took to it very well. Well, yes, and. Well, I mean, not on this album, but certainly um, the baseline from the Guns of Brixton is uh, is one that's well known to yes. uh, people of our generation, particularly. Indeed, uh, and of course, the baseline to Rock the Casbah uh, because of the classic hit uh, "Willennium" by Will Smith. <laughs> wow, I can't believe you threw the Willennium in. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, just, just as a like a thing that happened last year that like was massive and then no one talked about will smith slapping the shit out of um, <laughs> chris, chris rock, rock at the oscars like it was everywhere and then no one has mentioned it since because <laughs> i think everyone's still actually trying to process what the fuck happened there honestly it's it's like the entire world had a malarial dream <laughs> <laughs> quite so <laughs> Okay. And on a, on, a, on a tangential but related note, Will Smith winning the Oscar for King Richard is the definition of the career Oscar. Because I'm going to say it now, I fucking hated that film. Wasn't great. Not at all. Well, everyone knows he should have got it for Ali. Exactly. It's, it's like Denzel Washington getting it for training day. It's like, we know he should have got it for Malcolm X, but... yes. Well, even Ali was, you know, uh, he was also passed over for Wild Wild West. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> uh, can I go back to talking about the class? Because I've yeah. got a long way to go. <laughs> and I could I could riff on uh, Wiki Wow Wild West yeah. for quite a while. Let's <laughs> not. Right. So back to that gig, Fourth of July, seventy six. Straight after the gig had finished, the members of the Clash and most of the Sex Pistols as well as much of the rest of the London punk scene, showed up at another club in Sheffield, Dingwall's Club, to watch another gig by a band called The Ramones. (laughs) So Joe Strummer said it cannot be stressed how great the first Ramones album was to the scene. 
It was the first word of punk, a fantastic record, and as we will undoubtedly go on to talk about, had quite the influence on the sound of this album. Just, just a bit. And also very much on the album we'll talk about in two weeks as well. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. As I said, they didn't play live again for over a month uh, because Bernard Rhodes basically said, you guys need to be much, much tighter. So they basically went into a month of intense rehearsal. Um, And again, Joe Strummer talking about how they devoted themselves to that identity, if you like. The day I joined The Clash was very much back to square one, year zero. Part of punk was that you had to shed all of what you knew before. We were almost Stalinist in the way you had to shed all your friends or everything that you'd known or every way that you'd played before. I mean, I certainly hope that he wasn't literal in saying almost Stalinist about shedding his friends. Also with the um, utilising the phrase year zero. (laughs) It is the period when the Khmer Rouge are, you know, doing their thing. And... Also, one might say, given the Clash reached their peak around 81, 82, this could be described as a five-year plan. <laughs> Very much a collectivization around Sandinista. <laughs> nice! <laughs> I like that a lot. Well done. Oh, dear. Right. Okay. So, most of the songs uh, were written collectively by Joe Strummer and Mick Jones. Mick Jones basically said, Joe would give me the words and I'd make a song out of them. One thing I haven't yet talked about is the political messages that are front and centre of much of The Clash's output. Obviously, radical left-wing take on the world around them. They sang about social problems, as we'll go on to talk about in this album, the issues that were facing the youth of the day, and people organising themselves to fight against oppression, racism, etc. Well, and, I mean, again, we'll, we will talk about this throughout this album and in two weeks' time, but their position, by and large, with the movement, it set them set them very much away from the, yep. the, the politics of the punk movement or certainly what the punk movement eventually became. Exactly. So thank you, because uh, you've led me into the next list of quotes that I wanted to read. So a couple from Joe Strummer, uh, both from 76. He said, we're anti-fascist, we're anti-violence, we're anti-racist, and we're pro-creative. Later in that year, he also said, I don't believe in all that anarchy bollocks. Mick Jones, also 76, says the important thing is to encourage people to do things for themselves, think for themselves, and stand up for what their rights are. So it was very much music with a social conscience. You would say, well, I would add uh, music with a socialist conscience. Well, very good, indeed. Indeed. Okay, their first performance in front of any sort of audience for five weeks was on the 13th of August, 76, which they played before an invitation-only audience involving journalists and close friends at their Camden studio. One of the people in attendance was uh, sound critic Giovanni Didamo. He described the band as a runaway train. So powerful, they're the first new group to come along who can really scare the Sex Pistols shitless. Uh, I'm nearly there, don't worry. (laughs) Two weeks later, on the 29th of August, The Clash and The Buzzcocks, again, showing the um, close-knit nature of the punk scene at that time, Mm -hmm. 
opened for the Sex Pistols at uh, a gig at the screen on the Cream. We will come back to that gig, or at least the re- one of the reviews of that gig, mm-hmm. a bit later on. <laughs> oh, I have some things to say there. <laughs> right. In early September, so bear in mind, I still haven't started recording the fucking debut <laughs> album yet. Keith Levine was fired. Joe Strummer would claim that uh, he was basically using a load of speed. Keith Levine has repeatedly denied that. He would then go on to form Public Image Limited with some fella called John Lydon in 1978. Uh, Then, oh, fucking hell. We're now into 1977, okay? So we're mere weeks away from the release of the album, which they (laughs) haven't started recording yet. On the 25th of January of 77, The Clash signed to CBS Records, obviously a major label, for £100,000. Which, considering at that point they played around about 30 gigs, most of which as a support act, is a fucking colossal amount of money. Well, I mean, it's just the buzz they managed to get around them so quickly. Exactly. So, Marcus Gray, who's a historian of The Clash, uh, has said in his book... The band members found themselves having to justify the deal to both the music press and to fans who'd picked up on the critics' muttered asides about The Clash having sold out to the establishment. Joe Strummer himself said in March of 77, so shortly before the album came out, Signing that contract did bother me a lot. I've been turning it over in my mind, but now I've come to terms with it. I've realised that it all boils down to is perhaps two years' security. Before, all I could think about was my stomach. Now I feel free to think and free to write down what I'm thinking about. And look, I've been fucked about for so long, I'm not going to suddenly turn into Rod Stewart just because I get 25 quid a week. I'm much too far gone for that, I tell you. Great quote again. It's, I mean, Joe Strummer is is always uh, instantly quotable, really. <laughs> Indeed. So, Mark Perry, who uh, was the founder of a a punk periodical magazine, Sniffing Glue, he wrote that punk died the day The Clash signed to CBS. Uh, Didn't take long for him to change his mind, however, because uh, when he heard White Riot for the first time, he then said, they're the most important group in the world at the moment. I believe in them completely. All I said about them is crap. That's it, Mark. You stick to your guns, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Mickey Foote had been basically a sound technician at their first concerts. He was hired to produce the debut album. They released the first single, White Riot, in March of 77. That reached number 34 in the UK. And that's about it on background. I've probably spent about an hour on that. (laughs) (laughs) So I have nothing more. But like all the songs are really short, so we can fly through them. (laughs) <laughs> yes, because we always talk about songs for a very brief period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, okay, Kev, how did you first discover The Clash by The Clash? So, obviously, it will come as no surprise uh, to you that I have had a long history with mm-hmm. this album and this band. So, uh, I first heard it sort of like late teens, early 20s. I've always had a love for The Clash. This wasn't my gateway album, I will be honest. It was London Calling that got me into him, but as soon as as soon as that grabbed me, I was bang into everything. Simple as that. Yeah, fair enough. So for me, first listen, I've got to say. Oh, so really? I am I'm yeah, I'm much more familiar with later Clash albums. 
particularly London Calling, Combat Rock, I've listened to multiple times. And I'm very familiar with a number of the tracks on this album, but I have never listened to the whole album before researching this clash. I have to say, I, and you, this, you know this, Kev, but listeners, full disclosure, I am not the world's biggest fan of punk. Um, so just to let you know in advance, uh, I am going to review this and the next album ob- objectively. Um, but yeah, I've never listened to this album before. I did see Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros at Glastonbury in 99, I think it was. They weren't very good. Joe Strummer was really pissed and they were a bit shit. Um, so I have also seen Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. They were better when I saw them. The Mescaleros out- output was, it was okay. There was some, there was some good stuff. Mostly middling, um, but there you go. Yeah, fair enough. So, yeah, first listen. Okay. Okay, shall we talk about artwork? Yeah, I, th- I think we should definitely talk about artwork. And it's an interesting one to talk about, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, the artwork itself was designed by Polish artist, and I apologise to any Polish listeners, uh, Roslav Zajbo. That'll do. (laughs) (laughs) The photo from the front cover was taken by Kate Simon. Uh, That was taken in the alleyway opposite the rehearsal studios that they used to use in Camden Market. It's the classic black and white photo against the brick wall, which the Ramones had used just Mm -hmm. a year before and has been copied countless times since, as, as we've mentioned before. You'll note that only three people appear in the photo. Mm hmm. Terry Chimes did not appear, as by this time he had already decided to leave the group. I will obviously come back to that as we go through Legacy. Uh, Before we talk about what we think of it, I do also want to just briefly touch on the back cover, if I may. I, I assumed you would. Yeah, so... If you're familiar with the album, the photo on the back cover is a picture of, of, of police officers charging. Uh, so that was taken by photographer Rocco McCauley during the Notting Hill riot in 1976. Um, the reason I wanted to mention that is because that riot was also the inspiration for White Riot, which we'll obviously talk about in a bit. Indeed. So what do you think of the album cover? So I, I really like it. I think the the juxtaposition of the very simple black and white photo with the bold green and like orange font with the clash i think it's it's quite a striking it's it's quite a striking image and obviously the image used on the back and we don't usually talk about the the back of the album but it tells you what you're getting here and so i think yeah. it's a really good album cover agreed i think it is a really good album cover so so i i, I in my in my attempt to be pithy uh, i've said obviously very ramones uh, but with a lot more attitude because you've got the overexposure on that image on the front cover. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the the whole thing looks, it's supposed to look like a ripped photograph, isn't it? And like, yeah, like I said, the, the bright red, the bright green, to me, really reflective of, of, of the, the London punk scene and, and, and that attitude. Really good cover, like it a lot. Yeah, it, it, as you say, it's redolent of the DIY nature of the punk movement. Exactly. Okay, without further ado, and... The listeners are absolutely gagging for us to start going through it by this time. Shall I start taking us to the tracks? Yes, let's do it. Right, okay. Track number one, Janie Jones. 
Uh, this was named after an English cabaret singer in the 60s who, uh, in 1974, was convicted of controlling prostitutes at sex parties that she'd held in her Kensington home. She was released from prison in 77 and an allegedly smitten Joe Strummer composed the song in her honour. What do you think? Oh, I absolutely love this. The way to open an album... We've always talked about setting your stall out, setting exactly what you want to do. And it's got great energy. It's furious. It's There's anger in there. There's like just angst and everything. It's great. I love it. Hmm. <laughs> so I know they were heavily influenced by the Ramones, right? But it is a really interesting choice to start your debut album with a cover of Blitzkrieg Bop. Oh, behave, lad. No, it's it's like Gus Van Zandt's shot-for-shot remake of Psycho. Behave, lad. It, it's a pale facsimile of what's come before. Although, at least this doesn't have Vince Vaughn in it, you know, so it's got that go. <laughs> oh, right, right, okay. Joking aside, in all seriousness, I do think this is an odd choice as an opener. Perhaps that is because I'm coming to it 45 years since. Is that right? 45 years? A fucking long time ago, whenever mm-hmm. it <laughs> And the standard has become so copied, right? So I will accept that. Mm-hmm. And I could never put myself in the position of hearing it new, hearing it raw. But I'm afraid to me, this is just a paint-by-numbers punk song. I'm not going to say that about every track, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll go there firstly. But this one does to me. It's really well performed. You've got some great Joe Strummer vocals and some choral bits in there, which I like. But this isn't what we would come to associate with The Clash. This is a young, new band copying the sound of one of the bands that inspired them. Sorry. Okay, I mean, I, I completely disagree with you. And I So equally as you try to be as objective as you could, I've got to try and be an, as objective as I can be for an album that I've had a long history with. But, like, I find this, like, yeah, it's basic, yeah, it's simple, but I love the I love the energy, I love the power in it, I love Joe Strummer sounds great. Um, he does, I'll give you that, yep. And it, it's what I'm looking for for an opening to a punk album. Do you see what I mean with, I, it is it is a very on-the-nose Ramones style, I'll be kind and say, come on. No, I can't, right, I can except that there is there's a there's a clear lineage but like i don't i don't think it's as it's a facsimile or a no as i said that was being 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 a joke but i i do think paint by numbers is is a is a fair criticism to level at this in my opinion i would i would say that it's an unfair criticism as this is at this you are looking at it 50 odd years yeah. later than yeah, when it, when this was the cutting edge of the movement. Uh, fair point. Uh, it's it is 45 years by the way because we are not yet in our 50s. I've just done the maths <laughs> in my head. Uh, as I said, and I can't put myself in that position, so perhaps that is a little unfair. But as a first time listener, there's nothing remarkable about this particular song for me. 
and I think it's an odd choice considering some of the things we are going to go on to talk about, which, spoiler alert, I will be a lot more effusive in my praise of than this track. It's an odd choice as the opener. Okay, fair enough. Right, Remote Control is the next track. This was released as their second single in May of 1977 against the band's wishes. You probably know this story. Mm-hmm. So they'd already told Melody Maker that their next single would be Jenny Jones, and they were pretty pissed off when uh, CBS decided to undermine them and release Remote Control without their permission. So the band thought this was one of the weakest tracks on the album, and to them it became a symbol of everything they were fighting against, the sort of corporate machine. Um, So they later on recorded a song, Complete Control, Uh, which directly references this with the lyric, they said release remote control, but we didn't want it on the label. The song itself, uh, remote control that is, not uh, complete control. Remote control was written by Mick Jones uh, after a a disastrous tour uh, with the Sex Pistols uh, and loads of the lyrics refer to what they perceive as as pointless bureaucracy, local authorities cancelling concerts, police being heavy-handed, record companies being, you know, corporate machines. So the song mentions a meeting in Mayfair, which apparently is a reference to an EMI shareholders meeting on December of 76, which basically withdrew all support and cancelled the Anarchy Tour. EMI at the time as you'll talk about no doubt in a couple of weeks, were the Sex Pistols record label. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's basically a criticism of all that shit, of all that, we're in a band, we're supposed to be the centre of attention, and there's all this shit going on around us, uh, and we see it as everyone's just getting in our way. Well, and if you think, again, like looking at the wider context of Britain at the at this time, you know, this is the spectre of local authorities banning um life of brian mm-hmm. moral panic yeah moral panic and all that nonsense so like the wirral ban- <laughs> wirral council banned the life of brian <laughs> i bet george was furious <laughs> no i'd expect it from uh from them <laughs> but the, you know it it is this kind of uh, the moral paroxysms that um, British society managed to lather itself up into um, during yeah. this period. Yeah, indeed. What do you think? Love it. I really like this one. and So I think it's quite perverse that they apparently thought it was one of the weakest tracks yeah, on there. Yeah, it's mad. It's really good. To me, there's a bit of a buscock sound to it. And again, the buscocks mm-hmm. were around uh, at the same time. So there's probably a, a tacit, at least, influence there. It's also a sound that Sham 69 would go on to ape pretty much for all of their output. (laughs) Absolutely. So this one, as opposed to Janie Jones, this sounds a lot more urgent. And I think it's angry as well. It is angry. And I really like that that staccato rhythm, the because it sets it apart from the opener. Brilliant drumming from Terry Chimes. Great Mick Jones guitar work. Really like it. Yeah, it's it's great. And I suppose this is... So I understand... Whilst I disagree with your points about Janie Jones, that this remote control is what you're coming to the clash for. Mm-hmm. This is this is what you want. It's political. It's reportage. It's um, decrying the state of the nation. Yeah. As a good rock band really should. 
Yeah, I, 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 yeah, agreed. Well, do I agree? I don't think a good rock band necessarily has to. A good punk band. A good punk band yeah, definitely fair. should be decrying the state yeah. of the nation. Yeah, good stuff. Move on. Yes. Kev, I am so bored with the USA. With the USA. <laughs> this song was originally titled I'm So Bored With You, uh, written by Mick Jones. According to a book by Keith Topping called The Complete Clash, that song was around Mick Jones's girlfriend at the time, who apparently also the song Deny is written about. Both Joe Strummer and Mick Jones on the documentary film West Way to the World, which I haven't seen, I assume you have. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they both tell the story that it changed to I'm so bored with the USA because basically Joe Strummer misheard Mick Jones talk about the title when he was first playing at it at their at their bed sit. Um, so it's about condemning the Americanization of the UK and criticizing several aspects of American life. So immediately when listening to this for for the clash, for, for this clash, sorry, not for the it remi- like I thought instantly of when we talked about uh, the breakthrough of Blur, uh, Suede. Obviously, they were decrying the Americanization of British culture, and it's it's a periodic thing that happens. That American culture becomes dominant, and there's there's a kickback, which which is funny considering, you know, I suppose it's generational, really. That's obviously the fifties and the sixties that they very much embraced American culture. It was very much trying trying to absorb it all to bring some color to to british life whereas by this point it's it's very much the opposite it's the america is is not where we want to be it's not what we want to be ourselves it's the great satan well it's not quite yet the great satan but it's relatively soon (laughs) yeah indeed I love lyrics like Yankee detectives are always on the TV because killers in America work seven days a week. Never mind the stars and stripes. Let's print the Watergate tapes. I'll salute the new wave and I hope nobody escapes. So the reason I've cited that bit, what have you got in that what verse half verse? You've got the talking about American culture saturating TV. Yankee detectives are are always on TV. You've got references to Watergate, so the political situation mm-hmm. in the America through the 70s and what was big thing and, and all that. Talking about New Wave and the, strangely, the infiltration of the US punk scene into, mm-hmm. into the UK, which is what this is. That four or five lines has got so much in it that just encapsulates everything this song is about. Yeah, it shows you how brilliant um, Joe Strummer's lyrics uh, were. And obviously... All credits to Mick Jones for how he musically put it together um, into yeah. such a such a well developed package. I, I agree. So I, I would what I've said about the vocals here is is there's a real bite and with theme of the song that's that's abundantly clear. What I've said is it's a classic mix that you get with punk of ennui and vitriol. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, and I'm bored, this is shit, but I'm fucking angry about it. Yeah. Really like this. So, we're three songs in, and I just think, don't open with that, because you've had two belters that have come since. The only other thing I'd like to add is, which, obviously, doing this particular uh, clash, the opening does sound as though you've nicked it from Pretty Vacant. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh god yes absolutely of course they've nicked it from pretty vacant it's like <laughs> oh our mates that we've been playing with for the last year let's just fucking nick that riff shall we it is blatant mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway it's a great song yeah it is great you might have heard of the next one people white riot oh yeah so this, as I mentioned, was their debut single, reached number 34 in the UK. So there's two versions of this song. The single version, which reached number 34, and which also appears on the US release, which, as I said earlier, came out in 79. It's not the version that appears on the album. They decided that they would prefer to use a demo version of the song, which had recorded at Beaconsfield in Buckinghamshire in 1976 with Julian Temple. What do you think? So there's there's a lot to say about this song. Yes, there is. It was initially misconstrued as advocating a race war. And like obviously the context of the time. So 68, you have Enoch Powell with his Rivers of Blood speech. Yep. And then you have the rise of the National Front. You have there is a there is a a huge and particularly in punk as well, and certainly later. There is a a rise of the far right attaching itself, which isn't helped by some of the outfits worn by. Oh yeah, within I'm, two weeks that we'll I'm talk. I'm gonna about be them. talking about that. <laughs> but it's not that; it's the opposite. Exactly. And so, may I may yeah, I sure. read a quote from Joe Strummer on exactly that? So this is an interview with the enemy from December of '76. So this is even before the single came out. He says, when he was questioned about about the lyrics, they're not racist. They're not racist at all. The only thing we're saying about the blacks is that they've got their problems and they're prepared to deal with them. But white men, they just ain't prepared to deal with them. Everything's too cosy. They've got stereos, drugs, hi-fis, cars. The poor blacks and the poor whites are in the same boat. So, firstly, I think there's a thing to say around... The phrase the blacks is not something we would use nowadays to describe people of Afro-Caribbean heritage. So there's that. However, for me, the key line in that quote is white men aren't prepared to deal with those problems. Everything's too cosy because that's what this song is about, for fuck's sake. Well, exactly. Look at what these people are doing. They're pissed off with their lot in life. Why the fuck aren't we doing the same thing? White Riot, a riot of my own. He's advocating, like, similar to how I've previously expressed admiration for the French, because if they're not happy with with stuff, they will set fire to to a city until until the government pays attention. The issue that we have in this country is apathy. So we'll just, we'll moan, we'll grumble, but just accept any old shite that happens. And that's exactly what Joe Strum was talking about. Exactly. We, we'll tut and roll our eyes. Yeah. And so anyone that uh, was suggesting this was advocating a race war, fuck off. Right. Okay. So that's what the song is. To me, what I've written here, what the song also is, it, to me, it's, this is the perfect punk song because it does so much with so little yeah and it does it all in less than two minutes two chords that's all you've got but everything i said on the previous song about the bile the vitriol this takes that and it amplifies it and it rams it down your throat this is the sound of disaffected youth yeah exactly and Again, like giving wider sort of political context, we are talking 
it's only four years later where you've got the Brixton riots, you've got the Toxteth riots, you've got Bristol. This is speaking to a disaffected youth that needs something, needs something to change, but the only way it's going to change is by doing something about it. And that's exactly what you want from... And it's all, as you say, it's all done in two minutes. You don't need to piss around because the message is dead simple. Exactly. So on the choice to put the demo version on the album instead of the re-recorded version that was released as a single, to me at least, I think that's a really good choice because a song called White Riot needs to sound raw and my God, this sounds raw. Absolutely, you don't you don't want the edges smoothed off. It needs it needs to be jarring. It needs it, it's got to grab your attention. That's the point. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier about Paul Simon and picking the bass up in 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 less than a year. I mean, fucking hell, there's some great bass work on this oh, track. Fantastic. And even in the space of one minute fifty odd seconds, Mick Jones still finds time to absolutely shred his guitar. Yeah, I mean that, that's the thing. Like, there's so much crammed into such a short period of time. Yeah, it's great. This, uh, I think, it's fantastic. Great. Yeah. You see, I'm being objective. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hate and war. Next track. Um. So I think this is more than anything so far. This is the song that hints at what they were going to become. Mm-hmm. You've still got that raw Ramonesy influence there, but the structure here has got more complexity to it. It's not just verse, chorus, verse, chorus. There's a bridge. There's a couple of breakdowns. There's different elements that come in and come out. So this suggests a much more accomplished musical mind collectively than just three chords in the truth or mm-hmm. two chords in the truth, as, as we had in the last in the last track. What do you think? So, yes, it does speak to where they're, where they're going to go, but they ain't there yet. I've always found Hate and War a bit meh. Okay. I think it's fine. It just, I suppose after the sheer ferocity of what's come before, it feels like it feels like a come down. It's fine, but it, it has never grabbed me. Okay. I, I like it more than you do. I, it, I agree. It's, it's, it's compared to White Riot, it is um, very tame. But I like it. You can't keep it at that level, uh, even for something as short as 35 minutes. Oh, God, no. So I, I like this. I, I, think, I think, again, within the short duration, every member of the group gets to show off what they're about. And particularly, once again, the rhythm section. Terry Chimes, great drumming. Paul Simon and brilliant bass work. So there's a lot in this for me. I'm a I'm a fan. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I, d- I don't think it's bad. I just it's not my favourite. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. Okay. Uh, what's my name, Kev? Well, it depends who we ask or what toilet we go in. <laughs> Kick his ass, Seabass. <laughs> so a bit of reverb in the very opening riff. That's mm. very the cult. I mean, the the bass work and the drums in this are great. Oh, yeah, it's filthy. That bass line mm. in the chorus is filthy, isn't it? Um, you said the last one is a bit meh. This, to me, sounds a bit like a, an early live track that was really popular with the fans, so they felt that they had to stick it on the album. <laughs> I, 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 I honestly think that. So, and I understand exactly why you say that, because... My notes 
love this. I wish I was in a sweaty club, <laughs> absolutely jammed in, watching this being performed. There you go. Because I bet... I bet it would go off. But again, given the three or four that you've had before it, this is the point where I go, mm, all right, okay, fine. Whereas I find this a bit more exciting than Hate More. So, you know. Okay, fair enough. Right, deny, Kev. Deny, deny, deny. <laughs> deny, deny. I've got a crush on you. <laughs> Don't back Dune. Double Dune. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Starting with a fade-in. Yeah. Controversial choice on any song, particularly for a punk song. Yeah, it, it is an interesting decision. Mm. So what I've said here... Again, the rhythm section holds everything together really well. Again, you've got more really strong vocal work. I like it more than What's My Name. It's not a standout for me, but I like it. Yeah, I would I would broadly agree with that. It's got it's got a great simplicity to it, but that's not a criticism. I think it, it works because it's relatively simple. It makes you focus on Joe Strummer's performance and the lyrics which are which are great so it's not the best song on the album but i think it's i think it's really strong i did enjoy deny yeah so i've got one more thing to say and and bear with me okay bear with me because i am fully aware of the absurdity and arguably incendiary nature of what i'm about to say i can hear in this echoes forward to very, and I mean very, early U2. I think the guitar part in the chorus, and that is due in no small part to the the delay and the effects they put on it, but also the simplicity of it, is undoubtedly something that The Edge took inspiration from. Now, I am currently reading Bono's autobiography. I mean, fuck me, Kev, it is so Bono. (laughs) It's an interesting read, but my God, it's Bon. Oh, my God. I can't even describe how Bono is. Do you know what? We may need to do an entire pod. <laughs> do you know what? I'm up for that because <laughs> fucking hell. Anyway, within that, Bono talks a lot about how bands like The Clash were a big influence on you 2 okay? So perhaps I'm projecting a little bit, but just that guitar sound in the chorus, and I, as I literally mean boy October era U2, I mean, I'd, I can't say I picked that up when listening to her, but it wouldn't surprise you because obviously, as you say, they were going to be influenced by The Clash. They were going to be influenced by what come before. So it wouldn't surprise me if Boy October, that there are elements of The Clash within there. And, let you know, Boy is at 1980. Yeah, so it's not that long. It's only three years after this. No, exactly. But yeah, Deny, quite like it. London's burning. Fetch the engine, fetch the engine. <laughs> the classic theme tune to the uh, early to mid-90s Sunday night. ITV fire drama. <laughs> this, it's nothing to do with London burning, this song. Absolutely not. It's about it's about driving around London. Because you've got fuck bold. all better to do. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, it absolutely nails the ennui and angst of having nothing better to do than just drive around because you can't, there's nothing to do when you haven't got any means to do anything else. Yes. Oh, I have to say, right, when I was um, listening to this, I was reminded of, and 
anyone who's remotely associated with Liverpool Twitter, and I don't mean Liverpool Football Club Twitter, I just mean Liverpool <laughs> Twitter, will have seen the clip of the Scallies uh, in a police chase when the one lad's going, you're going to get the chopper on you! And the other lad goes, get the tunes on, lad! <laughs> I could not help but think about that clip when listening to this song. <laughs> so I didn't expect you to go with that. I thought you were going to go with... Um... Like the lads in the in the limo when, when they're coming back up from the club. So I was in the club, spinning my feet, sweating like a lizard. Oh dear, no. Um, anyway, yeah, check out Scouse Twitter. It's usually it's really good. Scouse really Twitter's great. It's the it's it, it's the best corner of Twitter. Just don't get on the wrong side of it. <laughs> no, exactly. What do you think then of London's burning? I think it reflects really well what it's trying to put, uh, trying to convey. The song itself is good, but it's not amazing. It's got some element, elements in it. So I like again, I like Joe Strummer's lyrics. Mick Jones' guitar is 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 good. Like the the band themselves are really good. I don't think it's amazing. It's I don't know. There's something. It's lacking. It's lacking a hook for me. I, I can understand exactly where you come from there, and I broadly agree. Actually, I love the uh, London's burning. You know, the, the, the shout mm-hmm. at the start, and thinking, "Oh fucking hell, here we go!" And, and it doesn't take you up from that point, really. No. And I think that's the point. I, I think that's its failing. Yeah. So what you do have in the vocal is that disaffected snarl is is back in spades with this, and I can hear in Joe Strummer's vocal at least elements of things like Daddy Was a Bank Robber, of things like I Fought the Law, in the way he sings it. This this is one, you're right to, to, to say that everyone in the band performs it really well, but this is one where Joe Strummer's at the forefront mm-hmm. and his vocals at the forefront. So it it is not without significant strength, but it starts with so much promise and it doesn't deliver. I think that's absolutely spot on. That clarion call at the start it never reaches that level that you think it's gonna. Mm-hmm. Indeed, quite right. Okay, Kev, what are your career opportunities? Oh wow! So we've talked we've talked about the lyrics before. This is so well written. It's it a is. brilliantly written song, musically and um, lyrically as well. So when he talks about, I won't make tea at the BBC. I won't open letter bombs for you. It's uh, so that's apparently a reference to. So let's go back. The song is basically a criticism of the economic situation in the UK in the late seventies. Lack of jobs, particularly to young people, and those jobs that were available were menial, were shit. Basically, they were they were things that young, energetic, enthusiastic, ambitious people didn't want to do because they knew they were dead end. So Mick Jones was once a letter opener for the British government to make sure that letter bombs weren't being sent, basically. So that line, I won't open letter bombs mm-hmm. from you, is it for you, is, is talking about direct experience. Again, this talks about that disaffection, that disengagement, that disillusionment with, with, with the way life is. Unlike London's Burning, I think this does deliver Absolutely. on the early promise because it's, it's furious. If you needed to explain to an alien what punk was you played him this mm-hmm. you know i think that's all i can say really 
the the only thing I can add to what you've said there is this song is absolutely it was absolutely nailed it then and it's still unfortunately relevant now there's a lot in this album that that is the case for you know sadly it's you know it's same as it ever was mm-hmm. a, a, as a man in a massive suit once said <laughs> go back to an earlier pod for yeah. discussions on big massive suits indeed um because yeah you're right the prescience of so much of what's on this album is quite depressing actually mm-hmm. you know 40 odd years later yeah okay um I like this a lot, and for all my talk about loving songs that last for ages and stuff, I also love a song that just stops. Yeah. And this just stops. Yeah, it's, it's the Ron Seal effect. It does exactly <laughs> what it says on the tin. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Kev, you're a cheat. <laughs> what do you think? So, hmm. it feels like an early song. It doesn't, it lacks the dexterity, the intensity of some of the vocals, the lyrics. Yeah, it's, it, feel, it feels like it's an early demo that they've stuck on there that hasn't really been worked enough. Yeah, I agree. I like the guitar solo, though. Well, a bit of flange on the guitar is yeah. not something you expect from a two-minute punk song in 1977. Again, that's very the cult. Mm-hmm. Um, but there you go. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to agree. And I would also say that sonically, this has got very little to distinguish it from career opportunities, but it has none of the attitude mm-hmm. that career opportunities does. It almost sounds like they just didn't press stop on, on the on the mixer desk <laughs> and just said, I'll just fucking carry on, let's play another one. I, I, it, it does. And that is actually one of the only times on this album that you get that, one of the things I like about the album so far, even though I don't like the opening track, is that there is variety from track to track. It's never samey. Exactly. Everything's offered something different, albeit within a, a certain framework. Okay, I get that. But as I said, this one just sounds like more of the same, but with none of the vibrancy of, of what you've had on the previous song. Yeah, it does sound like an early demo song. Again, one that was popular with the fans, so let's stick it on the album. I think you're spot on there. Okay. Righty-ho. Protex Blue. We are getting towards the end of the album. Um, so, I mean... If you hadn't realised it from the title, it is obviously a song about a brand of condom. Uh, apparently was inspired by the uh, prophylactic vending machine in the toilets at Windsor Castle. And even if that wasn't obvious enough, the fact that Joe Strummer shouts, Johnny! Johnny! at the end, it, it, which is a colloquialism for condom in the UK, pretty much just hits the nail on the head. Not their finest moment. Okay, so what did we say about London's Burning? It's a song that promises a lot but fails to satisfy, doesn't deliver on that promise. Exactly the same here. That guitar riff that started off, I fucking love that riff. Mm -hmm. It's filthy, it's chunky, it's massive. I'm like, yes, where do we go here? And you don't go anywhere, actually. No, I mean, I wrote down it's got a really, really exciting opening. The energy's kept up, but none of the excitement. So, uh, 100% spot on, which is ironic, given what it's about. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, the energy's kept up by Terry Chimes, 
and Paul Simonon again because the rhythm section on this is brilliant. There's some great drum fills from Terry Chimes on this track, right? So it's not without its uh, strengths. This, but yeah, I think you've you've summed it up perfectly. The energy is there, but the excitement isn't spot on. Okay. All right. Um, I already know what you're going to say about the next track because you've already said it. Police and Thieves, Kev, six minutes and 11 seconds of Police and Thieves. What do you think? So, I love Police and Thieves. Mm-hmm. I love the Junior Merv in the original. Produced by Lee Scratch Perry. Well, exactly. And I've always loved this version. The bass is really hooky, mm-hmm. but it does go on too long. It could lose about a minute minute and a half and i'd be fine with it the the ending of it it just goes on like they they don't do anything new they don't do anything else with it they just carry on i i can see where you're coming from there please may i read you all of my notes verbatim sure okay this is the biggest indication yet of how reggae would have an ongoing and increasing influence on the Clash's sound, and that is undoubtedly Mm -hmm. a good thing. When they work with Lee Scratch Perry, I would say this is the closest thing on this album to what I would describe as classic Clash, and what I mean by that is what the casual listener expects to hear Mm -hmm. when they stick on a Clash record. I know exactly what that says about me, by the way, but I'm just trying to be honest and open with the listeners, you know. You talked about the bass. Paul Simonon is absolutely the star of the show. The hook that is that bass line keeps you coming back to this song and keeps me, at least, engaged throughout its length. No, it doesn't have the sonic depth that things like Guns of Brixton or Rock the Casbah, etc. would go on later to have. But what I like about this is that combination of reggae structure and unpolished punk roughness. It works really well. So here's the bit I wanted to read verbatim. Kev's going to say it's too long, but he can fuck off. (laughs) If he can't cope with one six-minute song in an album that's only 35 minutes in length, then that's his problem. (laughs) I have nothing more to add. No, I mean, I can accept it's longer than two minutes. I can accept that. I just think that it's a little bit too long. It could do with a cutting down a bit. Or it could do with something more happening yes. in the last two and a half minutes. I I understand where you're coming from, but for me, the baseline is enough to keep me interested. Fair enough. You can still fuck off, though. <laughs> a fucking 35-minute album with 14 songs on it. What more do you want? Shorter. <laughs> You want 15 in less than half an hour? Yes. <laughs> uh, okay, um, so uh, the theme tune to popular Nick Nolte, Eddie Murphy action movie directed by Tony Scott, 48 hours. So the hive mind has worked again. So my first note was not a Nick Nolte vehicle. <laughs> um, I have nothing to say about 48 hours. It's another... Ramones-esque punk standard. It's perfectly fine, and if that's what you're here for, then you'll absolutely love it. I don't. I I don't dislike it, it just is. So, perfectly good. Got a really good energy to it. Um, I like this. Okay. Yeah. Shall we go on to the closer? Oh, yes. Right, Garage Land. (laughs) Ken is literally rubbing his hands together with glee. (laughs) So, this is where we come back to the review by enemy critic Charles Charmery of the 
Clash's performance supporting the Sex Pistols at the Screen on the Green concert in August of 76. Basically, the song is written as a response to that review, which read, The Clash are the kind of garage band who should be returned to the garage immediately, preferably with the engine running, which would undoubtedly be more of a loss to their friends and families than to either rock or roll. I'm not done yet. The guitarist on the extreme left, allegedly known as Joe Strummer, no, actually known as Joe Strummer, has good moves, but he and the band are a little shaky on the ground that involves starting, stopping, and changing chords at approximately the same time. Kevin is shaking his head in what can only be described as indignant disbelief. What do you think of that review, Kev? I hate Charles Sharmody. He's... (laughs) I've always hated him. He is that prototype, smug, mid to late 70s enemy reviewer who has read Chris Gow. I was going to say, does he remind you of someone from across the pond? And basically has has tried to become a facsimile. At least Chris Gow has his own style. It's a ridiculous, pointless style, but he has his own thing. Charles Shaw Murray is like, he has so little relevance. He rocks up on, like, I can't remember. I saw him on one of the BBC Four. It might have been Punk Britannia or something like that. And they read back to his his review to him, and he was like, "Yeah, I still stand by that." Even though, <laughs> even though, like, basically the whole of music had gone, "Yeah, you're wrong." He's like, "Yeah, I stand by it." It's piss off. Like, <laughs> just typical of the commentariat who, oh, I hate him, hate him, hate him. <laughs> he speaks very highly of you, mate. <laughs> Okay, I'll ask you what you think about the song in a second. What I love is that, and it's got to be a deliberate choice, this is one of the least garage band sounding songs Mm -hmm. on the album. It's got that quality to it. Again, it's got that roughness, that rawness that you expect from, from certainly punk at this time. But there's a depth to the structure and the composition that, that gives lie to those fucking ludicrous comments Again, every member of the group gets their moment to stand out. You've got breakdowns, you've got bridges, you've got solos, you've got a fucking harmonica part, for Christ's sake. Exactly, God buy him. I think it's fucking brilliant. It's great. I mean, I'm always a fan... Well, no, actually, I'm going to correct that. I'm generally a, fa- a fan of songs that call out uh, critics. I w- The reason I corrected myself is I was reminded of the awful... A stereophonic song, Mr. Writer. Oh, God! <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ! Wow, I'd forgotten all about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm generally in favour of this kind of thing. It also helps that the song is really good, it's brilliantly performed, and the band are absolutely on fire, and it's a great way to end the album. It is. I agree with all that. The the last thing I want to say, then, is obviously it's written later on in the album's progression because it's written in response to a review of, of one of their gigs in 76. You can tell that is the case because of that structure, because of that added complexity. And that shows that they were clearly maturing as composers and as songwriters very quickly. And that dichotomy, if you like, on this album between really early, raw, simplistic punk standards, like them or not, and that more complex, accomplished is a a harsh word to use, um, 
Distinguished? Yes, distinguished style is one of the things I really like about this album. It makes it feel, yes, slightly disjointed in some ways, but also really exciting at the same time. And and that is exemplified on this closing track and the fact they called it Garage Land. And they say, we are a garage band, we come from Garage Land. It is a fuck you to exactly what you've just described. The pious, pontificating commentariat, whom is neither the target audience nor welcome at the performances. Love it. Yeah, cannot add anything to that, really. You've absolutely nailed it. Right, that is the album done. 14 tracks, 35 minutes and 18 seconds. Absolute perfect length. Right, shall we go on to some reviews? Well, actually, no, sorry, I'm calling up on that. You said earlier it should be shorter, because you've you said <laughs> one of the songs is too long, so bollocks. Uh, fair enough, I did, I, <laughs> I did say that, so I cannot deny it. Right, shall I do some reviews? Yeah. So, Tony Parsons gave lie to his own fucking colleague's outrageous review uh, when he wrote in The Enemy that Jones and Strummer write with graphic perception about contemporary British urban reality as though it's suffocating them. Their songs don't lie. The Clash have made an album that consists of some of the most exciting rock and roll in contemporary music, which I would suggest we all agree is far more balanced and accurate than his colleagues' reviews. (laughs) Mark Perry, who we talked about earlier, he declared in Sniffing Glue, having said Punk died when The Clash signed to CBS, the Clash album is like a mirror. It reflects all the shit. It shows us the truth. To me, it is the most important album ever released. Once again, Mark, you stick to your guns, lad. Well in. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, another punk periodical zigzag. Chris Needs wrote, This is the most exciting album I've heard in years. It's one of the most important records ever made. So that's it in terms of contemporary reviews. Well, now I've got one more contemporary review to go, but we know who that's by, and I'll come to it in a minute. One retrospective that I want to go through, and it is once again returning to our old friend Stephen Thomas Erwine from All Music. Who said, never mind the bollocks may have appeared revolutionary, but The Clash's eponymous debut album was pure, unadulterated rage and fury, fueled by passion for both rock and roll and revolution. Though the cliché about punk rock was that the bands couldn't play, the key to The Clash is that although they gave that illusion, they really could play. Hard. The charging, relentless rhythms, primitive three-chord rockers, and the poor sound quality gave the album a nervy, vital energy. Rock and roll is rarely as edgy, invigorating, and sonically revolutionary as The Clash. Is right, lad. Indeed. Stephen Thomas Erlewine, yet again. He's really good, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he is. We should try and get him as a guest on this, this <laughs> I think he's well beyond us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, someone who's not well beyond that is uh, our good friend, Nobby McGee, Robert Criscow. So we've already learnt that he gave it an A in his review for The Village Voice. Would you like to hear what he wrote about it? Yes, please. <sighs> Right. So, what I, what I will say is, so this was his review of the 1979 US release, in which he said, Cut for cut, this may be the greatest rock and roll album, plus limited edition bonus single, of course that's in parentheses, ever manufactured in the US. It offers 10 of the 14 titles on the band's British debut, as well as 7 of the 13 available only on 45. The lyric sheet does not, repeat, not... 
self-destruct when you disobey its warning and read along. And the sequencing is anything but haphazard. The eight songs on side one divide into self-contained pairs that function as extended oxymorons on careerism, corporate power, race and anime, respectively. Yet the package feels misbegotten. The UK version of The Class is the greatest rock and roll album ever manufactured anywhere, in some small part because its innocence is of a piece. It never stops snarling. It's always threatening to blow up in your face. I'm still mad the real thing wasn't released two years ago, and I know for certain, I made a tape, also in parentheses, that the singles would have made a dandy album by themselves. Nevertheless, a great introduction and a hell of a bargain. (sighs) Right, so, actually... Pretty much what we've said, okay? Yeah, he still but... made it about himself. <laughs> exactly. I made a tape. I've heard these. Home taping movies. is killing music. <laughs> Fucking hell! What? It's so long. It's so long. <laughs> oh, we love you, Nobby. <sighs> Shall I go on to legacy? Yeah, uh, I'll get strapped in. <sighs> right, as we've already alluded to. The album charted well in the UK. CBS didn't want to give it a US release because they thought the raw sound would make it unmarketable there. I mean, had they listened to the fucking Ramones? Anyway. (laughs) So between 77 and 78, it was only available as an import, but actually became the biggest selling import ever (laughs) up until that point, selling over 100,000 copies. Great decision. (laughs) <laughs> in 79 obviously i talked about the modified uh, version that was released for the u.s market so that was released in the u.s after the second album give them enough rope and the version of white riot on the u.s release was the single version not the demo version that was featured on the album so we mentioned terry chimes was not on the album cover because by the time the sessions had come to an end he decided he didn't want to be in the band anymore Uh, Later quoted as saying, the point was I wanted one kind of life and they wanted another. And the point was why we're working together if we want completely different things. So yeah, he was much less immersed in the punk or the socialist activist ethos, I guess. The uh, Tony McCarroll of uh, punk. (laughs) Well, actually. Although he he could actually keep time. So So, uh, as a result... Nicky Hayden, who, as I'd mentioned earlier, was unsuccessful in auditioning for uh, London SS, was appointed as The Clash's full-time drummer shortly afterwards. His first recording with the band was Complete Control, the single that I mentioned earlier that was a response to the release of Remote Control. That was co-produced by Lee Scratch Perry, uh, although Mickey Foote was sort of brought in afterwards to just engineer a little bit. But it was a massive single. It got to number 28 on the chart in, in the UK. It's now known as uh, as one of the greatest songs in punk. And the enemy said that it was interesting how CBS had allowed the group to bait their masters. I mentioned Give Them Enough Rope was the second album. Before they started recording it, CBS were conscious of, of, of a desire to break into the US market. So they wanted the album to have a much cleaner sound to attract US audiences. Um, so they brought on Sandy Perlman, who'd done a lot of work with Blue Oyster Cult, to do the production. Paul Simonon later said that recording that album was the most boring situation ever. It was just so nitpicking, such a contrast to the first album. It ruined any spontaneity. Uh, so 
In the US, Give Them Enough Rope had largely positive reviews. In the UK, the press gave it largely mixed reviews because it was much cleaner and much more, I guess, corporate sounding than, than the debut. Uh, despite that, it got to number two in the UK album charts and NME readers voted it as the second best album of 1978. Uh, it didn't give them the US breakthrough that they were looking for, however, because it only reached number 128 on the Billboard chart, which was one of the things that then uh, encouraged, let's say, CBS to release the US version of the debut. So the major breakthrough in the US and globally would come with the release of London Calling in 1979. Uh, It reached number nine on the UK charts in December of 79. In January of 1980, it was released in the US where it got to number 27. And I think I'm going to leave it there because I have no doubt that at some point in the future of Album Clash, we will cover London Calling so yeah, I will say no more for now. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of past history. There's a lot of history post London calling to to there cover. Is. Exactly, so, and we need to save something for our future episodes. Well, exactly. <laughs> okay. Do you have anything more to say on Legacy? Because I say I, I have I have brushed over even the few years between the Clash and London Calling, and as you said, there's a hell of a lot still to come. Um, including multiple changes of drummer. <laughs> I mean, not Spinal Tap, but, you know. <laughs> yes, Nicky Heedon did not explode during a concert. <laughs> and leave a globule. <laughs> Nor did he choke on vomit. <laughs> it, but it was not his vomit. <laughs> okay, should we do best song, worst song? Yeah, let's do it. Right, you first. So, worst song... I would probably go with there's nothing I really dislike. Um probably cheat. As as I said, I think of all the songs on there, it sounds most like an early demo that hasn't been worked enough but has made its way onto the album. Okay. Best song? Best song. So the obvious one is to go with White Riot. Um, but I'm actually gonna go with Uh, my favourite song off the album, which is Career Opportunities, because it brings everything that I want from The Clash. Okay, so I agree with you on the worst song. It is Cheat. Uh, There's nothing for me in it, uh, and I agree with everything you said about it. Uh, So despite my criticism of the opener, it is not my pick for the worst song. Best song, I I was really tempted by Garage Band because I think it's brilliant. I really, really like it. But Sorry, Kev, it is obviously White Riot, because as I said, it is the perfect punk song. Yeah, I knew you would go with White Riot, so for once, I decided not to be Johnny Obvious. Fair enough. Okay, unsurprisingly, a long old show that um, I think the next one might be of a similar length, if not longer. (laughs) Just remind people, Kev, what you are going to be going through in a couple of weeks' time. So next week I will be going through the Sex Pistols debut and one and only album, uh, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. Brilliant. Okay, how might people keep in touch with us on the socials, please? So I thought I was going to struggle for this clash because, again, like particularly how Elon Musk has 
evolved Twitter since he took it over, it's quite hard to find the good content. Well, because like the For You tab can just get in the fucking bin. Oh, it can absolutely get in the bin. And I was tempted to to do a whole riff on Elon Musk is the least funny man in the world. Um, <laughs> ooh, I changed my name to Mr. Tweet. But fortunately, Twitter did come to save me. Go on. So I will point you to James Layton's Twitter page, which is at JamesL1927. Uh, a couple of days ago, he posted footage of the uh, singers uh, who were on the We Are The World uh, song, and they were singing uh, Deo, the Harry Belafonte song. Uh-huh. All I will say to you is watch Dylan. <laughs> Okay. I haven't seen it, so... I will say to you, watch Dylan, because it will be one of the funniest things you will ever see in your life, because he very much wants to go home. He is not having fun. Everyone else is having a lovely time in a sing-along. Dylan has the stoniest look. It's it's like someone had whispered something terrible in his ear just before they started filming. I mean, I can't imagine Bob Dylan being particularly enthralled at the prospect of, of singing Harry Belafonte. That's not to suggest that Bob Dylan is in any way prejudiced against Harry Belafonte, but it's not exactly his style. I swear to you, it's brilliant to watch. <laughs> it's so entertaining because they, he occasionally cracks into a smile. And then that disappears really quickly because it keeps because go- they keep singing it and keep going on. And he's like, for fuck's sake, I just want to go home. Kev, I think uh, our Twitter account needs to retweet that to make it easier for people to find it. We will definitely retweet it. Uh, and what, therefore, is our Twitter page? For so to- um, our Twitter page, which will definitely retweet this. Uh, because it's so worth it, is at Clash Album. If you like carefully curated quality content, you can go to our Insta, at Clash Album. Or if you want to send your comments on a grumpy-looking Bob Dylan, then please send us your views to albumclash at gmail.com. Or send us uh, your impression of singing Harry Belafonte's (laughs) Banana Boat song uh, whilst looking completely po-faced. Do a little uh, video... Yeah, don't put them on TikTok. Send them to us instead. It'll reach a far wider audience (laughs) of me and Kev. (laughs) Uh, Dear. Okay, I guess that's about all we have time for this week. Uh, Yeah, indeed. So um, all that's left to say is... I have, as usual, been Tim. And I most definitely am Kev. And we shall see you in a couple of weeks, guys. Thanks for listening. Cheers, Tim. So uh...